Hi everyone, I'm, I'm Steve Gray and um, I'm a, a member of the Blue Ocean uh, Faith Church and grew up in the bosom of evangelicalism and, um, and where there was a strong emphasis on uh, scripture and evangelism. Well, since this class, I have lots of what I consider to be interesting stories to talk about the evangelistic part of my upbringing, but, um, but we're gonna focus on scripture. And just to give you a little bit of a sort of framing for it, the, um, I grew up in Flint, uh, Michigan, in a you know blue collar uh, east side of town area, in a in a church called the United Brethren Church, which is a small sort of evangelical church. It was actually the first church to form in the new first denomination to form in the New World, and it was sort of a merging of the Brethren Church and the U and the United Methodists. But it took a pretty you know squarely uh, evangelical approach, and um, but. For me, as a uh, white male, and um, you know, in a mostly white church, it, it, it really wasn't overwhelming at that point. It wasn't, you know, something that um, I saw as something that was negative. I felt nurtured and supported. And and interestingly, you know, um, it, most of the members of my church belonged to a union. So, and as a result of that, most of the members of my church were Democrats. In fact, we had three quarters of our township board, which was all Democrats, you had to be a Democrat in order to win, they were members of our church. And so I never really saw, until the culture wars hit, you know, in the 90s, um, I, I never really saw this, you know, sort of divide between Republican and Democrat. I didn't assume that in order to be a Christian, I had to be a Republican. Um, certainly, you know, I would have ruled out most of the people in my church. You know, having said that, I was saved, um, which was really important, at a Jack Van Impey crusade, which I don't know if you've ever seen Jack Van Impey, but he's on sort of late night television and he talks all about the end times. And it was really sort of the scare the hell out of this little fifth grader kind of thing. <laughs> I, I, I knew that, man, I did not want to be around for the tribulation and all the bad things that were going to happen. And so I needed to get up there and get saved. And so I went forward and got saved at a Jack Van Impey crusade. And that kind of got me, you know, at least saved, which is good. And the Bible really was, like I said, a, a big part of of uh, of our faith. So um, from the very, you know, from the very beginning, we had these things called sword drills, which I, you know, some of you who grew up in the in the church, evangelical church, may have experienced those, where you would take your Bible and you would draw your swords. They referred to the Bible as a sword. And then you would, they would give you a scripture to look up and they would say, draw your swords, charge. And then you would look and try to find that particular scripture that they were looking for. Then you would stand up. And if you were the first one to find that scripture, you'd stand up and start reading it. And often you'd get some little prize, like a piece of gum or something. Um, I always thought it was interesting that the Bible was referred to as a sword. Back then, it was really used as a sword against Satan. Right. I mean, it wasn't like a sword that you were using against somebody else, against humanity, which it later became to be, and uh, which I think was a big part of sort of my reorienting my faith. But then it was just meant as a, you know, a, a, a weapon against the devil. Um, in Sunday school, we we often would go through periods of time where we would have Bible verses that we would take home and memorize and we would come back. And if you had the Bible verse memorized, you know, you got some kind of award, at least some kind of acknowledgement that you did. Uh, but the big thing, and which I thought was really, you know, a very ingenious way to sort of get young 
people, especially young boys, to memorize scripture was they sort of turned it into a competition. And we had this phenomenon called Bible quizzing, which was a team sport, actually, uh, a team event. And you would memorize, there would be a certain book of the Bible that every season you would be responsible for trying to memorize. And then they would ask you questions about it. And really, the, the, the way that you would answer the question would be jump up and quote a scripture. And it was, it was like a physical competition. You sat on these little pads and jumped up when you, when you thought you knew the answer. And if you were the first one to jump up, um, then you got to quote the scripture um, there. And then you got points for it. And I excelled at that. One, it was competition. Two, it was a team event. And three, I got lots of attention for it. So um, uh, I ended up, you know, several of the teams, several years that I was on, we were national Bible quizzing champions of the United Brethren denomination. And so um, really, that was how, you know, scripture was just such an integral part of my life. And I had mostly a nurturing, you know, sort of relationship with scripture. You know, like I said, as a white, uh, straight male. It was really how God spoke to me. And so I can think of, you know, a number of instances where, you know, you know, sort of out of the blue, scripture would come to mind. Some scripture that I had memorized long ago uh, as a child. A couple of examples are my vocation. So um, I, I'm, I'm a, a legal aid lawyer, and so I represent poor people. And I was really came to that through, um, you know, uh, a period of time when I was actually coaching Bible quizzing. And we were studying Matthew and chapter 18, and um, God really brought to mind, you know, the parable of the sheep and the goats and how important it was to look after the least of these, and how, you know, that would be something that I could do as a lawyer. And so, you know, that came to me through that scripture being brought to my, you know, brought to my mind. Another time, um, one of the more traumatic times in my life when uh, I'd been married for quite a while, I had two young kids. My wife and I were up on the roof doing some roofing repair, and um, she fell off and injured her head and, and suffered a traumatic brain injury and um, was in the hospital for uh, 21 days. And it just, just, I mean, you know, I was just for certain that my life was over. She, she had completely, like, she just was not the same person. She was, you know, by far the smartest person in our family. And, and, um, and it was just, you know, it was devastating that I thought I had lost joy. And, and the scripture came to mind, which is really kind of doesn't have anything to do with it. But, you know, it's, it's like in Corinthians, it says now about food offered to idols. And so the scripture is actually about this particular you know, phenomena back in the early church. You know, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I just tell you, that was like God coming alongside of me saying it doesn't matter whether, you know, if Joyce lost her intelligence. Or she's, you know, whatever her happened to her brain, but is she still has the capacity to love, and that's really what's important. And that was just, you know, just such a, a comfort for me. Of course, no joy, you know, grew back those brain cells stronger than ever, and now she's forced to be reckoned with, of course. But um, so anyway, a nurturing approach to scripture. But as I um, sort of got older and um, started, you know, living out my my vocation, I was sort of called into legal aid. And kind of came in conflict during the culture wars with most of the evangelical church. Um, and I don't know if you remember the contract with America and the second contract with America. Well, during the during the second contract with America, they specifically, you know, had a provision in there that they needed they wanted to eliminate the funding 
for legal services for the poor. And so I was really struggling with the idea that how could the same people in the same Bible be read so differently where, where God used scripture to call me into service for the poor, into legal aid. And, you know, I felt like I had found my vocation and, and um, you know, in God's, directly in God's will. But people were saying, evangelists were saying, no, we, you know, we need to eliminate that. and that's, that's not a thing of God. And so that was where I started to, you know, start to wonder what was going on and uh, think about scripture and the role of scripture and how could people have two different interpretations of it. And I think the other thing that sort of got me headed in the direction was, was law school and actually the, the Christian university that I went to where it's, it's main mantra was all truth is God's truth. So it sort of set me on a, like, you don't need to be afraid of the truth. And it doesn't necessarily, scripture isn't all found. I mean, truth isn't found, all found in scripture. There are other sources for truth and it, it's all God's truth. And so you can, you can embrace that. And so um, the thing that I think kind of, uh, there was also an incident with, an, with Anita Hill. I don't know if you guys remember that, where um, I knew that Anita Hill was a Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian. I had actually met her at a Sunday school party uh, a number of years before that out in Oklahoma when she was at Oral Roberts University as a professor. And the whole evangelical community had turned against her thought she was lying and was taking the word over somebody else you know, with a, uh, questionable moral integrity. And so um, that also got me sort of oriented in a different, in a different way. Um, but I think that actually pushed me over the edge was two incidents more, re you know, back 10 years ago, probably when our church was going through our, our split, I guess I would say. And I was happened to be teaching high school Sunday school at the time. And those high schoolers had no issue at all, couldn't understand what the problem was, couldn't understand why we would be reading scripture in the way that we were reading it. It just didn't make sense. It wasn't consistent with the love of God. It wasn't consistent with what they were seeing among their peers. And that, you know, I really became convinced that, you know, we needed to, to take a different approach to scripture um, if we were going to keep those teenagers in the faith. And then also sort of a personal connection with, with Lisa Ruby, who many of you know. Um, she was a colleague of mine. And, um, you know, just, you know, having, as, as Ken has explained over and over, and, and, you know, and I think was instrumental in him, was the sort of the personal pastoral things, the relationships that came forward, just had you take a look at it a little bit differently. And so I started looking at scripture a little bit differently. And I, I just wanted, I know I've gone way too long, Ken, I'm sorry. But I had a couple of tools that I wanted to point out really quickly. So one of the one of the books that was really has been really helpful for me is The Bible Tells Me So by Peter Enns. So he's a professor at uh, Eastern College or Eastern University. I think it's called not Eastern Michigan, but it's actually in Pennsylvania. And there's a number of good sort of progressive evangelicals there. And that's a, that was really helpful. Um, also reading church history. Um, I was that happened, you know, I was a history major in college, you know, uh, coming from a family where nobody went to college, but, you know, I didn't know what my major should be. I really liked history. So I ended up as a history major. And, um, you know, reading church history, you start to see that, you know, the interpretation that supposedly is being told you, this is what the Bible says, is reality. In reality, it's probably changed 
five, six times over the course of history, you know, since the Bible was written. And what about the time before the Bible was written? You know, it's like, so, um, so I think, you know, reading some interesting, you know, histories of the early church was really helpful in that regard. And I think, you know, God has not given us the spirit of fear, you know, sort of that's in, I believe, Timothy, uh, second Timothy, I think, you know, where's this notion that God has not given us a spirit of fear, he's, but he's given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. And so I feel like this sort of like clinging on to so tightly, like one reading of scripture as the reading of scripture is based out of a spirit of fear. And so, um, you know, having some, you know, letting go of the fear and embracing and trusting the love of God to help guide you as you read scripture um, has been really helpful. And then the other thing is to kind of make sure that you give grace and to yourself and to the others around you, because it can be, if you're reorienting yourself, it can be really disconcerting to your family members and friends who aren't. And, you know, they're they're really worried for the, your salvation and your soul. So you need to make sure you give them grace. And I I came across this idea as I was talking to my brother-in-law, um, and I just wanted to share. I don't know if you guys remember the four spiritual laws. This is the last thing, Ken, I promise. The, the four spiritual laws, it was this little evangelistic tool that we had. Uh, I believe it kind of came out in the 70s, uh, maybe even before. If we can go back one slide, the previous slide. There we go. It was a little three by five booklet and it sort of walked you through the four spiritual laws, which starts out really well. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Man is sinful and separated from God. Grace is the only way to get to God. and You have to personally accept him as your savior. And it was like this little evangelistic tool and you wanted to be able to share the four spiritual laws so that you could, you could help people become saved and avoid hell. Well, in there, as part of the illustrations for it, there's this little throne uh, graphic. If we could go to the next slide where it's trying to explain, you know, how we're sinful and separated from God. And it has this little, and the one that I had that I remember was actually a throne. It's like, who's on the throne of your life? Is it yourself? And if it's yourself, then, you know, you're totally self-interested. There's discord and frustration and Christ is outside your life. What you want to do is get Christ on the throne of your life. Yield yourself to Christ and everything's going to fall into order. Well, you know, that that's something that resonates with evangelicals very strongly, you know, like not having yourself. And I said, what if that S actually was not yourself, but scripture? Like, have I worry that we've really replaced Christ with scripture? And that's sort of the basis of Solus uh, Jesus as well. And so I think that's something that has resonated with anyway, some of my old boomer uh, friends thinking about it. That terms. OK, thank you, guys. Sorry, I went too long. Um, I'll turn it back over to Ken. All right. Thank you, Steve. I think Steve was the actually the individual champion in the uh, Bible drill. And Kim, Kim Robinson also, I believe, was an individual champion in Bible drill. So it's pretty intimidating to have two national champions in your congregation if you're, if you're talking about the Bible. Anyway, so Steve is pretty much expressing the approach to scripture that many of us either grew up with or maybe learned on the campus ministry, previous church, or actually it's the, the view that you absorb just through contemporary popular culture. And it's one I think that can 
for, for some obvious reasons, uh, turn into a kind of stumbling block to our fruitful engagement with Scripture. And it's summed up in the phrase, the Bible says. I mean, how many times have we heard the Bible says as a kind of final word trump card in a debate? So I want to I wanna, um, organize my remarks today, and then we'll have some time for Q&A and comments afterwards under three major headings. The first is the trouble with saying the Bible says. Second, thoughts on the morally objectionable things in Scripture. And third, just a couple of suggestions for Bible recovery if, if you've been negatively influenced by, this, by the, the um, disadvantages of this, of this approach. So let's begin with the, the trouble with the Bible says two things. First, the Bible doesn't actually say anything. You know, it, it's a written text, right? And so it's not speaking. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible's a written document. No text speaks for itself. All texts require a reader to be deciphered. And the act of reading a text, any text, uh, you know, out loud or even just as a voice inside our heads, is an act of interpretation. You know, example, uh, the phrase, don't be afraid, in the voice of a mother reassuring her child is one thing. The voice, don't be afraid, from a platoon leader urging a private into battle is another. So tone of voice, facial expression, body posture accounts for what? Like 80% of communication, all of which are only inferred at best in any form of written communication. Um, so often as readers, we're just making our best guess about the, you know, the most important uh, portion of communication. We're interpreting by the act of reading. And, and here's, I think, the, the, it's the hardest thing for me to get my mind around when I'm comparing modern approaches to reading with uh, the, the, the uh, approach of communication in the biblical period. In the ancient world, where manuscripts were rare and literacy rate, rates were low, the primary mode of communication was um, performative, meaning a person speaking before a group, acting out a message, not even reading a portion of the Bible out loud, but more like retelling a story from the Bible. Like, I guess on our church service, it would be like Diane Sonda does in a kid's minute, you know, with puppets and changing voices and dramatic pauses, retelling a story that is written down in scripture, the primary mode of communication in the ancient world was this performative acting out uh, approach. So in, in a world like that, what are written documents? Written documents come into existence more as like notes or a script for those, those acted out performances, only with the stage directions missing that you'd find in a modern script. So that, that means that interpretation, filling in the gap, shaping the meaning of the words with tone of voice, physical gestures, acting out the words, is even more important compared to, say, a modern novel, where a writer is you know, crafting, conveying all this with very complex language, including internal dialogue, and so on. So someone acting out a story has to do a lot of interpretation. You know, you inflect with humor, with sarcasm, irony, exaggeration, pathos, dramatic pauses, all of which have a huge impact on the meaning of the communication. 
course, the other obvious problem is that most of us don't know the original languages of the Bible. Ancient Hebrew, in the case of the what we call the Old Testament, and ancient or Koine Greek, which just means like uh, common Greek or street Greek, and not, not the higher literary Greek. That's the, the Koine Greek is the language of the New Testament. So we're depending on translations from ancient languages into modern English. And the act of translation involves a great deal of interpretation. Every choice made in translation affects meaning. Um, you know, great example is Nikita Khrushchev in what, 1960 at the United Nations, takes his shoe off, pounds it on the table, and he says something in Russia, it's translated as, we will bury you. It turns out the Russian translator was raised in London. A more accurate translation of what Khrushchev said was, we will outlast you. So big difference. Sarah Rudin, my latest favorite accomplished translator of ancient texts, including the New Testament, says in her book on translation, The Face of Water, the translations of the Bible can easily convey different meanings because the ancient languages Koine Greek for the New Testament, Biblical Hebrew for the Old Testament, are so different from English in so many ways. Uh, just one simple difference that has a huge impact is that English has a much larger lexicon or vocabulary than either Ancient Greek or Biblical Hebrew. English is therefore capable of being much more precise than these ancient languages are. So when a language has fewer words, each word carries more possible meanings, right? Each word, in a sense, is more vague, is less specific. So what do we mean these ancient languages have fewer words than, than English? Well, Biblical Hebrew uses an estimated 8,700 unique words. English has 170,000 unique words. It's a huge difference. It's the difference between a preschooler and a clinical, clinical psychologist talking about feelings. So the preschooler uses what, glad, sad, or mad. The psychologist knows mad encompasses irritated, annoyed, hangry, resentful, jealous, you know, enraged, livid, and many shadings in between. That gap is filled in by interpretation. So when word choices are as limited as they are, in ancient Hebrew and Greek, each word covers a wider range of meanings. So translating the world in, word into English takes a lot of guesswork and a lot of interpretation. Significant interpretation decisions start with the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit was over the waters. God seems straightforward, except the Hebrew there is Elohim, which is a plural noun more literally, the gods. Ruach is the Hebrew that translates spirit, but Ruach in Hebrew means equally wind, breeze, breath, spirit. And so whoever's translating the word is, is, is interpreting by choosing one of those translations. In Genesis 2, the woman is described as a, as a helpmate in the older English translation. Robert Alter says helpmate is quite misleading that the Hebrew term actually means something like sustainer beside him, much closer to the original Hebrew. So 
every translation involves a lot of interpretation, producing then a written text that needs further interpretation by a reader. All readers come to a text with prior assumptions, concerns, and loyalties, and those prior assumptions, concerns, and loyalties affect the um, choices made uh, and the interpretations made. So scripture doesn't say anything without a reader. All reading is an act of interpretation. All interpretation is shaped by prior assumptions, concerns, loyalties, and that's just the first problem with saying the Bible says. <laughs> so the second problem with the Bible says is the Bible doesn't speak with a single voice. Um, the Bible includes a variety of perspectives from different writers. And these, when, when you read the Bible, you see that these writers disagree, even contradict each other. They, they don't always speak with a single voice, which is implied in the Bible says. So another way to say this is scripture is multivocal, not univocal. It's not a single book by a single author, but a collection of writings from many authors. These different authors have different points of view. They don't agree with each other, including on important matters. So examples, Genesis chapter one describes creation happening in six days. Uh, in which vegetation appears before the creatures and humans are the last of the creatures. But in Genesis 2, different creation account, creation occurs in a single day. In the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth is the phrase. When no plant of the earth was yet on the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, then the Lord God formed the human from the dust. And then after the creation of the human, you have the creation of the other creatures. So it's a completely different ordering. And, you know, whoever put these two chapters together, uh, called technically the redactor or the editor, they knew that these were two different stories from two different points of view. And they, they, readily put them together because they weren't concerned about what we think of as historical accuracy. They, were, they had other concerns. The stories were making different points. They fit fine together from that point of view. Or another example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the, three of the four gospels, have Jesus' prophetic disruption of the temple occurring at the end of Jesus' ministry while in John, it occurs early on. It's one of the first public things that Jesus does. So not the Bible says, but Mark says one thing, John says another. This is a more accurate way of talking about scripture. Another example is uh, the books of, of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament inveigh against Israelites having foreign wives, actually command Israelites who have foreign wives to put the wives away, divorce them. The book of Leviticus says, love the foreigner who lives in the land as equals, love them as yourself. Uh, the book of Ruth features Boaz marrying a Moabite, which is like the most hated en enemy group for Israelites at the time. And, and that union gives birth to Obed, who's the father of David. 
Moses in, in um, the book, book of Exodus marries Zipporah, a foreign wife. So you've got multiple perspectives, multiple views on that one issue. What if the goal instead of a single correct interpretation is multiple plausible or good interpretations? You know, in that perspective, meaning is still important. All, all interpretations are not equal, but anxiety is reduced. You know, in, in uh, Acts 15, the early church was facing an interpretation issue regarding what to expect of the non-Jews coming to faith in Jesus. And so they debate this matter in the Jerusalem Counselor, and then I think it's James uh, sums up the consensus of the group by saying, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Not it seemed right, but it seemed good to us. One way to be right, many ways to be good. It just leaves a lot more room. There's a lot less anxiety and fear about getting things wrong with that uh, multivocal view of Scripture. So, to sum up so far, simply accepting these two things, all Scripture must be interpreted, and what we call Scripture includes many different perspectives, which don't always agree, which sometimes actually contradict each other. Just accepting that like, brings enormous relief. In this view, if this is what Scripture is, then we're invited into a conversation with the different perspectives within Scripture. It's like, you know, there's, there's a living room and people are uh, speaking uh, from different points of view, some of which agree, some of which disagree. We come into the living room and we kind of get a beat on our own thinking and make our own contributions, agree with some voices, disagree with others. That's what it's like to engage Scripture if this is what scripture is. Which writings do we elevate? Which do we consider secondary? That's our task as readers of scripture, making those discernments. So to onto our second main section, thoughts on the morally objectionable things in scripture, including uh, morally objectionable things that are attributed to, attributed to God. This, I think, is the the greatest scandal that we face as modern readers of scripture. Two thoughts on that. All ancient writers' writings include morally objectionable things. That's just the nature of ancient writings. Most of us are less aware of this because the only writings from the ancient world that we have actually personally interacted with are the writings of scripture. So we haven't read ancient Buddhist or Hindu scriptures. Or we haven't read the Quran. We haven't read Homer's the Iliad or Virgil's the Aeneid. If we did, we'd find much to take issue with morally, things that are morally objectionable in those writings. You know, if we think about the U.S. Constitution, that's only 250 years old. So it's a tenth of the age of scripture. And it contains things that we regard as morally objectionable. Only white men who are landowners are eligible to vote. I mean, even someone in the KKK would object to the landowner part of that. You know, we can imagine society, say, 50 years 
down the road, reading our contemporary writings and being aghast at things that we take for granted as, as perfectly morally acceptable. You know, you can imagine a world 50 years from now, it's possible pork would be grown in the lab from, from pork cells, not from pigs. And everyone would look back at the willingness to eat pork from pigs requiring slaughtering these highly intelligent creatures as just like morally abhorrent. Why would anyone do that? So within scripture itself, what is considered morally abhor abhorrent in one era, like marrying a half-sister, is accepted in another era within scripture. Though sometimes the older perspective is arguably superior, it also works in the other direction, like uh, the laws on the treatment of animals in Exodus and Leviticus far exceed the most stringent best practices of PETA, the animal rights group. But often the, the morally abhorrent is the, to us, is, is the, earlier, um, the earlier writings. So I think um, the, the worst things in scripture that work on us uh, are where God commands Moses or Joshua to commit genocide against the Canaanites. So some thoughts on this, not an explanation, just things that occur to me as I encounter these texts. These writings uh, that we call the Old Testament actually didn't emerge until 500 BC during the Babylonian exile. So they're depicting events that are, that are like roughly a thousand years earlier than that. But the written documents don't come into, uh, into being until roughly 500 BC. So what were they? Well, they were stories. Even the law portions of the books like Exodus and Leviticus that include laws, uh, even the law portions are set within a narrative. So, you know, this happened, that happened, and then the Lord said to Moses, thus and so. So they're actually part of stories. The laws are part of stories. Like all the stories in scripture, they, they began as performance art. They're acted out. They were designed to keep people's attention. Um, they employ humor. They employ exaggeration. They employ pathos, surprise, sarcasm, and all the other tricks of rhetoric. And in these stories, in, in the Old Testament in particular, uh, God would often appear as a character in a story. You know, God kneeling down in the dirt, breathing into Ad Adam, uh, like kissing Adam, well, that's God appearing as a, as a character in a story. We also know that when the writings were gathered as writings of the people of Israel were in 500 BC, Israel had suffered at least two major invasions, worse than what the Ukrainians are undergoing now or the Syrians have suffered under Putin, worse than the, the attacks on Yemen by the Saudis, more like what the First Nation suffered here in the uh, colonial era. Psalm 137 comes from this era. Beautiful Psalm, one of the most beautiful Psalms in all of scripture, quoted, loved, 
basis for some beautiful songs. By the willows there, we hung up our lyres. That's from Godspell. That's Psalm 137. Beautiful psalm. But it ends with, God dashed their infants against the rocks. Not usually included in the lectionary readings of Psalm 137. Obviously, this is the cry of a traumatized people for vengeance. Treat them, God, like they treated us. So we see this in the writings of the period, which include the genocidal commands. There's actually no archaeological evidence for a mass genocide in what became the Holy Land. So there's no mass graves, which, which should be in the archaeological uh, record, but we don't have that. So in scripture, we have voices calling for vengeance, uh, which is different than justice, and we have voices calling for mercy in this, in, from, from books of the same period. So in Leviticus 19, same period, roughly, as, uh, as the genocidal things attributed to God in, um, in the book of Joshua say, in Leviticus 19, we have love the foreigner living in the land as you love yourself. So this rules out killing them. Same voices in the same time period. So when we encounter the stories calling for genocide, we can respond like Abraham did. Uh, will the God of justice be unjust? God forbid. Um, actually, let's look at that story in Genesis 19 because it, it's, uh, it really helps me as I encounter these things in, uh, in Scripture. People in Scripture freely protest the words and actions ascribed to God in Scripture. People in Scripture freely protest the words and the actions that are ascribed to God in Scripture. That, that to me is just fascinating. We see characters disagreeing with God, getting away with it, even being honored for it. I think it's in Genesis 19, Abraham meets the three messengers, one of which is simply called the Lord, on the way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the wickedness of its inhabitants. Abraham lodges a protest. Will the God of justice not himself be just? And so he negotiates with God. Will you destroy the cities if there are 50 righteous, 50 innocent? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And God adjusts in response to his protest. Some of the ancient uh, sages of Israel actually fault Abraham for stopping at 10. Like in, in, the, in the Middle East, not to be a good negotiator is really, that's really a strong lapse. And so Abraham is faulted by some of the sages for stopping at 10. If Abraham had been a better negotiator, he could have prevented the destruction of these cities just because God is portrayed as advocating something in scripture doesn't mean our only faithful option is to go along with it, especially when the reason for our protest is rooted in what we learn from the God portrayed in scripture as Abraham does when he says, will the God of justice not be just? So if, the, if Abraham, the father of all who believe, was free to protest, why would we not be uh, have that same freedom. So this has been this has been very helpful for me as I encounter these texts in uh, 
these ancient writings. So let's, um, let's just close with a couple of uh, Bible recovery suggestions, uh, especially if you've come from this background where you've had this more problematic understanding of, of Scripture. My, my first suggestion would be don't force it. Take the pressure off. It's actually it's possible to foster a very vital connection with God without reading the Bible. Many have done this within the Jesus tradition. Anyone who can't read does this. In Solus Jesus, I think Emily has a chapter where she points out how literacy rates were very low up to the invention of the printing, printing press. People who don't read were not reading their Bibles. Even today, literacy is not universal. Uh, literacy is not a requirement for faithfulness to God. I think Marcia uh, pointed out in the chat that, that the Bible drills, you know, really weren't, were, were really kind of exclusionary in terms of the, the, the people who could su succeed in that had certain pre-existing skills. So if you have been subjected to what, what I think can reasonably call, be called spiritual abuse from people using scripture as a club, it's completely understandable that you just need a break from reading scripture. And sometimes people need like years long break from actually reading scripture themselves. It's just like too triggering an experience. The body remembers, even though your mind has a, has a, a different perspective now. Um, at the very least, you, you may need to just proceed with caution. And there are lots of ways that, that we can be exposed to the truth of Scripture without actually reading it. That happens, that happens in the church service in lots of different ways. Um, maybe you read a book that engages Scripture for Lent or listen to podcasts that are dealing with these, these issues. So, like, there's no rule that says you have to read the Bible to have a close connection with God. Uh, second suggestion is um, to take a self-defined and stay connected approach to reading the Bible. So if you're, again, if your experience has been tainted by the misuse of scripture, try a self-defined, stay connected approach. This, this comes from family systems theory um, the idea is that anxiety flows between people. It's not just something that's inside of us, but it flows between us. We catch anxiety and fear. Family systems theory says that families tend to organize around the most anxious members. You know, the loudest, the people who are the most upset. We tend to like want to keep the peace. So we organize around the most anxious members of a group. And the way to navigate this within family systems theory is you self-define. That means you set your boundaries. You say what you think. Doesn't mean you have to argue everything, but you just state what your view is when it differs from the views of others. And then having self-define, it's more possible to stay connected. In fact, if you don't self-define, Sometimes the only way to stay connected is to just like go along or pretend or like reduce your own self. Or you just disconnect entirely. You know, it becomes so toxic, so painful. You're not self-defining. Your only alternative is just to disconnect 
entirely from the family or the group. So in an anxious family system, self-defining can help you stay connected. I think that's actually a great, great way to interact with friends, with spouses, with business partners. It's a great way to relate to your therapist, great way to relate to someone you admire, but maybe you don't agree with all the time. Self-define, stay connected. Good way to stay involved with groups of any kind. Good way for us to connect with scripture as well. Self-define. That's what God does in the burning bush with Moses, by the way. Moses sees this bush aflame, but it's not consuming anything. He has a sense of like a divine presence. Moses asks the bush, who are you? The response is, I am who am. That tells Moses, uh, what you're seeing is not just the projection of your imagination, but someone who will define themselves, not others. <laughs> um, Jesus was really good at self-defining, you know. This is how I see things. So, to self-define in relation to scripture means you step into your power, you step into your moral agency to discern, to agree or disagree, to learn from, be inspired by, to poke, prod, protest. Uh, bring the whole range of your agency as a reader. I think this is part of the glorious liberty of the children of God. Uh, we're children of God. We're not clones of God. We're not robots of God. We're children of God. So you're reading along. This was the first, uh, first Bible study that my late wife, Nancy, and I went to. We were probably 19 years old, brand new to faith, never read the Bible before go to a Bible study on North Campus that someone invited us to. They're studying 1 Corinthians 10. Women should cover their, uh, their head, you know, wear head coverings as nature itself indicates, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I think it is. Well, you read something like that, you might say, if I'm understanding Paul correctly, I don't agree with him. Or... By nature, I think he actually means what we think of as culture or convention. So agreeing with everything or worse, pretending to is not actually the best way to learn from someone else. Sometimes arguing with someone is the best way to learn from them. So we can bring this way of interacting to scripture. And because we're free to self-define, then we can afford to stay connected. And by staying connected, we can also learn from someone like Paul. We can gain insights that we don't have, but we later come to appreciate. Or we can, we can draw inspiration from the Psalms or from the writings of Isaiah the prophet or Mary in the Gospel of Luke or Jesus in the Gospel of John or Naomi or Ruth in the Book of Ruth. These ancient writings are from a time when the world was much more enchanted, more tuned into mystery, more comfortable with transcendent realities, pinking at it, in at us. Like there's a semi-permeable membrane between heaven and earth and, and people in, in, in an earlier time understood that and they, they were facile with interacting with transcendent realities in a way that our modern world isn't at all. We didn't get that perspective from high school or college or grad school or reading the New York Times. 
but we have an itch for it that needs scratching. And so ancient writings are a place to encounter that. If we're free to self-define and we practice self-defining, which can be a little bit scary at first, especially if we've kind of been, you know, socialized that that's a really bad thing to do, then we can expand our horizons beyond the limits of just contemporary voices because every culture, including our own, has lenses that help us to see some things better, but also blinders that hide things from us. So if we can learn to self-define, give ourselves emotional permission to self-define, we can stay connected to ancient voices with different lenses, different blinders than ours. And these are actually the skills that we need to develop in any kind of meaningful relationship, including a relationship with God. So those are my thoughts on rethinking scripture.